Episode 122, Santa Baby. I'm Assistant Curator Merle Riedel, and you're listening to a December 15th, 2010 podcast from the Kansas Historical Society. In this podcast, museum staff reveal the story behind the story about artifacts featured on the Cool Things section of our website, kshs.org. Santa baby, just slip a sable under the tree for me. Dressing like Santa Claus is a tradition for fathers and mall workers around the world. In the 1970s, apparently the tradition applied to newborn babies, too. Join curator Laurel Fritsch and me as we examine a tiny Santa Claus costume worn by a newborn baby in Bellevue, Kansas. Find out how Christmas cheer drives a family to dress a baby like an obese 50-year-old man wearing long underwear. Then we go behind the scenes to check out the Kansas Historical Society's new website. With over three years of development and countless man hours, find out just what goes into launching a website for a 130-year-old institution. Finally, in Six Degrees of William Allen White, we connect the populist Kansas author to the Snow Miser, a fictional ragtime singing villain from the 1974 made-for-TV movie The Year Without a Santa Claus. Did White and the Snow Miser both have disgruntled family members with a penchant for pyrotechnics? But first, Santa Baby. Santa Honey... One little thing I really need, the deed, to a platinum mine. Good morning, Laurel. Good morning. In the spirit of Christmas, today uh, we are going to discuss a tiny Santa suit worn by an infant in Bellevue, Kansas. Um, We have come to affectionately refer to this costume as the Santa baby. (laughs) Laurel, could you please describe what this suit looks like? Sure. It's a one-piece red outfit with little footies, and it has a white fuzzy waistband and trim at the white fuzzy trim at the cuffs and also around the buttons that go down the center. And it also comes with a red conical hat with white trim. So, Which is pretty cute. It's pretty cute, and it's basically your standard Santa suit. Except miniaturized. Except miniaturized and with little footies. The suit is an infant version of the Santa Claus costume. Uh, what is the origin of Santa's outfit? Not not necessarily not specifically a baby's outfit, but why does Santa Claus in general, why does he look the way he does? Well, that's a really good question, and I think a lot of people might be surprised to find out that it's really only within the last century that Santa's outfit has become what we think of now as the traditional Santa outfit. Um, The very first American description of a Christmas figure that resembles Santa Claus is in Washington Irving's satire of Dutch culture, which is called History of New York, and that was published in 1809. And Irving's description is based off of the Dutch tradition of celebrating St. Nicholas's Eve. And I'm sure some of you might be familiar with St. Nicholas already, um, but for those who aren't, He is the patron saint of children, and he is typically depicted with a white beard and wearing a red bishop's robe. So that's where the red part of the outfit comes in. 
And then it was a couple of years later, around the Civil War, when the cartoonist Thomas Nast put all these different components together in his illustrations, and he created what we now think of as the the Santa Claus suit. But it didn't originally start that way. In his very first illustration for an 1863 publication in Harper's Weekly, he depicted Santa in the traditional fur-trimmed coat and pants and hat, but it was all in a stars and stripes pattern. So oh, that's very patriotic. Yeah, for Christmas very season. patriotic for our Santa Claus. Um, and then, of course, over the years, Nast altered his Santa suit, and he finally settle, settled on one that was just a solid colored jacket, pants, and hat, all trimmed with fur. Um, and then the color red sort of became popularized in large part due to Christmas cards that tended to feature that color a lot. And um, really it was about the 19, about 1900 when the Santa suit became sort of standardized. And then um, it really got popular around the 1920s when Coca-Cola started to feature Santa Claus in their ads. And their... Uh, because Santa Claus just happens to... Uh uh, thematically, <laughs> color-wise, resemble their product. Yeah, yeah, it, it is pretty amazing that that all happened as it did. So the robes actually, or the, the costume kind of evolved from Bishop's robes originally. It, yeah. That were yeah. depicted mm-hmm. with St. Nicholas. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. This particular suit belonged to a young lady named Joan Ladober, um, and she wore it. Who was Joan, and why was she wearing such a tiny Santa suit? <laughs> Well, um, Joan was wearing a tiny Santa suit because she was very, very tiny when she was born on uh, December 3rd, 1963. And her aunt and uncle, Mary and David Prickett, gave her parents this little infant outfit for her um, because she was a December baby and it seemed to fit. Um, And they ended up purchasing it from J.C. Penney's. And J.C. Penney's just happened to have issued their very first catalog in 1963, the same year that um, Mary purchased this outfit. So for this little suit John. was bought from the first Penny's catalog. That's possible. I haven't been able to confirm that yet, um, but it. I have to go back and yeah. So how did we end up with this with the uh, with the suits? Right. Well, uh, J- uh, Joan's um, sister works here at the Historical Society, and um, so she was able to when they were going through their things, think about us and think about donating it to us. Um, and so it was really through her sister that we ended up getting this cute little outfit. Joan's birthday was in the same month as Christmas, which many claim is bad news. Uh, kids get shafted because they receive <laughs> the double holiday gift. They sure do. Here you go. This is for your birthday and this is for Christmas. And people just forget about their birthday overall. And then they're like, oh, crap, you know, switch the cards or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What is what is the cultural origin of the Christmas gift gift giving tradition? Like, why we don't really do that on Halloween? I mean, we don't exchange yeah. gifts. Why? Where's that? Where does that come from in Christmas? Well, um, you can really look to a lot of places in the world for an answer to that question. Um, and many cultures have calendar days around December in which gives, gifts are given that usually originate in some sort of winter festival. Um, for example, in Italy, gifts are given on January 6th, which is the Feast of the Epiphany. And that is when the three magi gave their gifts to baby Jesus. So okay, the that little, makes a little more sense. The little Italian children get their gifts the same day that baby Jesus got his. 
Um, well, depending on what country you're in, there are multiple different kinds of people associated with giving gifts to children, um, such as St. Nicholas, who we already mentioned, in the Netherlands. There's also Christkind in, in Germany. I'm and sorry, what's that? Christkind? Christkind. Well, that's a fun name. Yeah, I'm not pronouncing it that, that like great a, in German. But sounds like Christmas, a Christmas like hard candy dessert. Oh, Christkin. it does. That sounds good, like a peanut brittle. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But really, gift giving took off during um, the time in Victorian England. And that was from about 1837 to about 1901. And Christmas gift giving really surged at this point in history for two main reasons. People often imitated the habits of the British royal family, mm-hmm. um, you know, much like we would imitate the the styles of the celebrities now. Oh, she's wearing that jacket. I want that jacket. Those sorts of things. And um, so at this point in history, uh, the then queen, Queen Victoria, married her husband, Albert, who was from Germany. And the tradition in Germany was to place small gifts under an evergreen tree during the month of December. And so when the British royal family um, started that, that tradition... Which People is a bizarre tradition in and of itself. <laughs> Why are we putting boxes of stuff under trees? I, I, don't, I like hey. it, but... So that, so that was one component. Um, but the other main factor was the Industrial Revolution. During the Industrial Revolution, that really provided the infrastructure to mass produce a lot of inexpensive toys and other goods. And so these different factors just sort of came together and made Victorian England really the start of the, the huge Christmas gift giving bonanza that we have today. Mm-hmm. And Coke probably did something, too. <laughs> well, you know, Coke never hurts. <laughs> yeah. If you could ask Santa Baby for a present, what would you ask for, Laurel? Um, there are a few factors to consider when drafting your Christmas list for Santa Baby. Like mm-hmm. we said, this is a tiny, tiny baby outfit that, that appears to be like Santa. But I'm saying if he was, in fact, um, a version of Santa delivering presents... Uh, you'd have to be careful because Santa Baby can't really carry too much. Uh, he probably drives a pretty tiny sleigh. Um, I'm curious if if Santa Baby brings gifts, are they made by Santa Baby elves? And are Santa Baby elves are they smaller than Santa Baby? <laughs> are they babies themselves? Mm. Is Santa Baby's sleigh pulled by reindeer or baby reindeer or small children dressed like reindeer? <laughs> I like to think Santa Baby Sleigh is pulled by puppies with fake antlers. Oh, that'd be very yeah. cute. So, Aww. considering all those factors, uh, what would you ask uh, ask for from Santa Baby? I'm from Wisconsin, and I have seen a few babies nestled inside cheese heads. <laughs> um, so, I would imagine that if you hooked some transportation, you know, some of those little, uh, what did you say, you know, like the little puppy reindeer or <laughs> right. little babies up to a cheese head, um, then not only could you have a sleigh, but you could also get your Christmas gift. Right, so you're, so you're suggesting a, a cheese sleigh pulled by puppies uh, with a baby dressed like Santa Claus yeah, oh in my- it, and then you could eat the sleigh later. Oh, well, no, no, you don't eat a cheese head. You wear it. It's made out of styrofoam. Oh, come on, Merle. You got you to get on this. But, yeah, you know, to make it even better, you could take the puppies and you could put little Packer helmets on it. That would make it even better yet. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You could definitely do that. All right. Be great. Excellent, Laurel. Uh, thanks for telling us about uh, Santa Baby. Well, thank you, Merle. Have a good Christmas. Oh,
for the Kansas Quiz. I'm Laurel Fritch, and this week's question will be multiple choice. Since Christmas is a celebration of birth, and this week's cool thing involves the birth of a baby, what could be more appropriate than a Christmas quiz question about christening? A christening is a Christian religious ceremony in which an infant is baptized and given a Christian name. Over time, christening has evolved to encompass a lot more than just naming babies. It's also come to include naming inanimate objects, as is the subject of this week's quiz question. To christen the battleship USS Kansas in 1905, a bottle of what was broken over its bow? Is it A. Champagne B. Perfume or C. Spring water. Well, scribble down your answers, and I'll be back with the answer after the next segment. Get ready for KSHS.org version 5.0. In the 1990s, the Kansas Historical Society was one of the first museums on the internet. Today, we go behind the scenes with museum web developer and assistant director Rebecca Martin to examine the museum's latest version. So we're sitting here uh, in your office, actually, in front of your computer, looking at the new website. Mm -hmm. It's very colorful. What is the role of a museum website? Is it uh, just for telling, uh, telling me the hours and addresses of a museum? You could use it for that, but... The web is so much more powerful, and in fact, we use it for furthering our mission because our mission is to spread the word about Kansas history, and we do that through our collections. So when you go to our website, we have a lot of information about our collections. How much work goes into the development of a new website? We took two years to do it, and uh, we started by analyzing um, well web metrics, how our users come to our site, what they search for when they're on our site. We did user surveys. We did targeted surveys of our constituents. Um, you're smiling because you realize this is all <laughs> a lot of meetings, right? Cause no, no. I'm just thinking, I'm like, there's another place that does this. It's called Google. You know, It's like a <laughs> yes. huge corporation with a huge yeah. staff that they're, they make yeah. millions off of understanding how people use the internet. Yes, they do. And and actually, there's so much information out there on how people use the internet that we read a lot of that, too, online. Mm -hmm. uh, what are people expecting? Um, we went to visit other websites and see what people were doing and, and think about, you know, what are their new trends that are out there since the last time we redid the website. And then we got down to um, actual design and placement on the page, which is, you know, what you see today. And the final step was converting all of our thousands of pages to the new system. And that took a long time. And you were involved in some of that, too, or you yeah. helped with converting pages. Right. And you said this, so you said that there was like, what did you say, 3,000 pages? Uh, we started with over 5,000, and we whittled it down to over three because we consolidated pages. Right. And some we deleted because they were you know, out of date, and we'd forgotten about them being out there. So 3,000 pages. And on a, I mean, a certain level, it requires someone to go through each one of those pages 
and make sure the information is still relevant, it's still formatted correctly, yeah. and then make sure there's a, any changes for a new for the new website. Yeah, it's a lot of work. It is a daunting task. And our pages are not, they don't tend to be short. Uh, so when I go to the website now, there are more pictures. That's the first thing I noticed. Sure. It's a lot more, uh, a lot more visual. And data is kind of segregated into columns. Mm -hmm. um, what was the purpose of this, of more pictures and, and sectioning data like that? We wanted motion and color to be introduced to our website, our homepage. Our, our, our previous homepage was static, static images. So now you have, a, you see this big image slider across the top that um, scrolls through different images and hopefully catches your eye and you think, oh, what's that website? Council Grove, never been there. Maybe that would be a good weekend trip. What are some of the new features of our website? Well, one of the ones um, the curatorial staff worked pretty hard on is uh, the po most popular collections. So if you go to our navigation bar, which uh, we have a, a bar across the top of our website that's our navigation structure, and that's the main link, the main way we present are 3,000 pages. Mm -hmm. um, so you um, hover over research and one of your options under research is popular collections. So um, our curators got to go through and pick um, these most, they based it on what we get a lot of our inquiries on mm -hmm. and what people are interested in. And uh, this will change each, uh, probably each quarter. So we're going to put something new in these film strips, these little thumbnails, which you can click on and it opens a box on your page, just like many sites, a color box, right. uh, a light box. Um, and you can see a really nice picture and a brief description. A picture. A beautiful spode picture uh, that's in our collections. And uh, sometime in the next couple of months, you'll be able to click on that picture and it will take you to our collections portal, which is Kansas Memory, where mm -hmm. we have even more information on those collections. Right now, we, we can't do that. We're still working on that. Uh, any other new features? Yeah, we have um, a section that we're working on called Kansapedia. I'm pretty excited about this, <laughs> I have to tell you. Well, as we were talking about, our website does tend to be somewhat encyclopedic anyway. Um, might as well embrace it. <laughs> you might as well go for it. So this is the these are the beginnings of our online encyclopedia, Kansapedia. And again, you can get to that under research, clicking on Kansapedia. And um, we have featured articles on the main page, but you can also search by people, place, race and, race and ethnicity and theme, or you can just enter something in our Kansapedia search box. So if I search for airplane, for example, I get um, all sorts of options. The articles that have been on our website quite a while, um, but they've been rewritten and reorganized to be presented like an encyclopedia. And will this have Wikipedia qualities to it? Will yes. I be able, or the general public, will they be able to go in and add um, a biography of their grandma? Eventually, yes, you would be able to do that. And as you know, we get when we're dealing with um, donors or the general public who have something in their personal collection they want information about, they always want to tell you their story, their family story. Mm -hmm. And we don't, in the past, we haven't had any way of sharing that story with other people uh, from their county or their town or their family. So, yes, uh, that's one of our uh, goals in the next six months is to have. The public have opportunities to submit their own articles or comments on our website and be part of Kansapedia. I'm Laurel Fritch, and I'm back with the answer to the Kansas Christmas quiz question. Governor E.W. Hawk launched the USS Kansas battleship in 1905 
by breaking a bottle of C spring water over its bow. That's right, the answer was spring water. Although it was traditional to christen ships with champagne, the governor broke spring water over the bow to demonstrate Kansas's commitment to prohibition. It was rumored, however, that several sailors gave the USS Kansas a quote-unquote proper christening a little bit later that night. He's Mr. White Christmas. He's Mr. And now it's time for another round of Six Degrees of William Allen White. Joining me today is Museum Director Bob Keckeisen. Hello. And Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman. Hi. Today we are connecting William Allen White, a Pulitzer Prize winning author from Emporia, Kansas, to the Snow Miser, a chilling fictional character from the ni- from 1970s stop action films. Kind of a holiday themed uh, Six Degrees of William Allen White, I guess. Uh, Bob, you want to give us a little background on uh, on Mr. Snow Miser? Uh, Snow Miser, you bet. Well, Snow Miser is best known for his role. Well, we're act- talking about him like he's an actual person. Well, anyway, the Snow Miser is a character in the 1974 stop action Christmas special, The Year Without Santa Claus. Classic. Yep. Well, in this film, the Snow Miser was the troubled adult child of Mother Nature. Mm. And his arch enemy was his brother, appropriately named the Heat Miser. Right, right. such a cliche plot. Yeah. So, well, so I'm assuming yeah. their mother was not married to their father, Mr. Miser, since well, she's uh, It's never clearly explained <laughs> who the father is. Huh. There's two different fathers. I don't know. Interesting. Okay. Got to be a don't mess with Mother Nature. Yeah. Somewhere, but anyway. Um, Snow Miser is kind of an elderly Jack Frost type character and he has the ability to manipulate weather and he's always creating snow or he's freezing objects he's you know kind of like Dr. Freeze type mm-hmm. Well, he does all this while he's surrounded by miniature versions of himself. And the big number is kind of a ragtime number where he's dancing and singing with all these little miniature people and they're freezing things and having all sorts yeah, of things. Yeah, it's excellent. Well, the Snow Miser was the product of the popular uh, Rankin Bass Studio, which specialized in producing uh, seasonally themed stop motion productions, mainly in the 1960s and 70s. And these all feature these kind of doll-like puppets that are posed in stop motion. Mm-hmm. Um the most famous and the, the well, the best known is Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, which I think is the longest-running Christmas special yeah, in television history. It still airs today. Yeah. Well, in in the year without Santa Claus, which the Snow Miser appears in, um, Dick Sean voiced um, the Snow Miser, and he's probably best known for his role as. Um, the character LSD in the original movie of The Producers, the Mel Brooks movie in 1968. Uh, he was a great character actor, didn't really do a whole lot after that, did some stage shows and things like that, but he's a... Um, if you if you look up Dick Sean on the internet, you'll you'll recognize him. He's a very very well known character actor. So if I was watching this movie in the 1970s when it came out, mm-hmm. I would have recognized this guy's. Oh yeah, this, Dick Sean. Snowmiser's voice would have been a familiar voice to me. Yeah, and if you'd seen in the credits, you say, "Hey, Dick Sean, that's cool." You know. Um, well, they actually in, in 2006 they did a live action remake of the Year Without Santa Claus and. Uh, um, they didn't get Dick Sean for that one because he had passed away a few mm-hmm. years earlier. But uh, Michael McKean, who is best known uh, for uh, This is Spinal Tap mm-hmm. and a number of other Christopher Guest <laughs> movies, uh, well, he played the the role of the Snow Miser in the uh, live action thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in 2005, um, 
someone found some Rankin Bass puppets in their attic, and they sold them for like four thousand dollars a piece. So mm-hmm. this is still a pretty well known, very iconic. People are are, are, are uh, very familiar with Bank and Rass, and, mm-hmm. and are um, you know obviously collectors out there. And I guess Rudolph is probably their best known. Uh, is that Christmas your favorite? Special. I don't know. While it yeah, holds a special place, I think, for, for any of us that grew up watching these specials at the time. But I'd have to say my favorite is probably a toss-up between, um, in 1968, they did one called The Little Drummer Boy. Mm-hmm. And since, you know, I'm a percussionist, I like that. Uh, and I also always liked, well, actually, I didn't particularly care for the production <laughs> of uh, Santa Claus is Coming to Town. They did that in 1970. But... I like it because Fred Astaire is the narrator slash mailman character who tells the story mm-hmm. of Santa Claus. And I thought, that's pretty cool to snag Fred Astaire I have to as tell your you, narrator. You know, I always kind of thought of them as made-for-TV, t- made low-budget films. But mm-hmm. when you start looking at the actors that they got to voice some of the stuff, yeah. I mean, they got like Fred Astaire. They got some pretty, pretty uh, well-known actors mm-hmm. at the time. Um, so okay, so I'll tell you what uh, I'll, I'll tell you in a minute what my favorite is, but I'll tell you that Rudolph is probably my least favorite. Ah, I always found something slightly creepy about Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Mm-hmm. I think it was more. It was all about this, like you know, sort of very infantile deer gets kind of rejected by his family, oh. goes out into the wild, runs off with who a man who looks like a pedophile, right? The prospector, <laughs> I'm which sorry. is is like a pedophile, yeah. and you're and I'm kind yeah. of always. <laughs> I'm anxious because I'm always thinking that something is going to go horribly wrong for I know, this little deer. Because as a kid, you're watching it, and what do your parents tell you? Don't leave with strangers, uh-huh. especially ones who look like pedophiles. Right. Yes. And stranger danger, up- Rudolph. <laughs> stranger danger. <laughs> but, you know, when you, when you think about it, too, though, they really are kind of cutting edge because at the time, you'd think a kid's show that's going to talk about Christmas and everything, and they've got this elf who wants to be a dentist. Right. Mm-hmm. Also weird. He's yeah. always pulling but teeth out. Kind of, you know, very, you know, very bizarre for the time. You'd mm-hmm. think here the elf wants to be something else, and the elf wants to be a dentist. It's, uh-huh. it's kind of kind of cool, actually, that yeah. they came up with that conceit for the show. Yeah. But know? then there was also the Island of Misfit Toys, which for uh-huh. me was just a huge guilt-inducing thing, because yeah. here it was Christmas, and you're uh-huh. going to get new toys, and your old toys, toys are in the toy box, and they're sad. Yeah. Nikayla, what uh, what is your favorite uh, Bass Rankin film, and uh, can you connect the Snow Miser to William Allen White? Well, I have to say, my favorite Rankin Bass holiday special is not stop action because that stuff creeps me <laughs> out. I hate that stuff. As a kid, I watched it and I was like, "Really? This looks so old and so dated." My favorite though is Frosty the Snowman, which they also ah. did as regular cell animation uh-huh. and that's always been one of my favorites that and Charlie Brown which they did not do so I do have a connection between oh that's what we're doing right yeah. 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 <laughs> now that we've talked about creepy holiday shows uh, we do have a connection um, okay so as we've been talking Snow Miser appeared in the stop motion animated show The Year Without a Santa Claus and that story was based on a book written by children's book author and poet Phyllis McGinley, and she wrote it in 1956. Wait, there was actually a book with stepchildren of Mother Nature? Um, I don't know that that's the exact storyline of her book. Uh, it was just based on her story. Okay. Well, McGinley was a member of the National Institute of Arts and Letters, which was, was and still is an organization that strives to foster, assist, and sustain excellence in American literature, music, and art. So uh, the Institute has a lot of notable members that people would recognize from this podcast, like Franklin P. Adams 
and um, John Despasos and Dorothy Parker and Sinclair Lewis, but also in that group, William Allen White. He was a member. Wow. He was elected in 1908. All right, nicely done, Nikayla. Bob, would you like to issue the challenge for our next episode? Sure. Well, in two weeks, we will connect William Allen White to the Messiah of the British invasion, John Lennon. <laughs> Uh, this Beatles lead singer was first a tween heartthrob, and then he became kind of the quintessential hippie. Mm-hmm. And, of course, along the way, he proved to be a uh, political activist and a pretty darn good songwriter. <laughs> so. so come back in two weeks when we connect William Allen White to John Lennon. Did White attempt to smite the rebellious Beatles by introducing Lennon to a young Japanese artist named Yoko Ono? Find out when we play Six Degrees of William Allen White. Santa baby, a 54 convertible to light blue. That concludes episode 122, Santa Baby. If you would like to see images of this infantilized Santa costume, go to our website at kshs.org and click on podcast from the interact menu. We want to be at the top of the list for our history podcast on iTunes, and you can help us do it. Just go to iTunes, search for Kansas History Podcasts, give us a listen, and write a review. Simple, right? Plus, a little feedback helps us make a better podcast. The day an American family acquired its first television was a momentous event in the 1940s. For one family, in Delia, Kansas, it was especially memorable because theirs was the first set in town. Join curator Laurel Fritch and me as we examine an admiral television. Did this TV lead a tiny community into the modern age or draw the spiteful envy of jealous neighbors? This podcast is a production of the Kansas Historical Society. Real people real stories Santa cutie and fill my stocking with a duplex and checks sign your ex on the